Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Mario Sacariccia is Emeritus Professor at the Department of Economics, University of Ottawa, where since 1978, he taught macroeconomics, monetary theory, labor economics, and the history of economic thought. He's also the editor of the International Journal of Political Economy. And we're going to talk about the Canadian mostly public healthcare system. I say mostly because there is a public health insurance plan. The hospitals almost entirely, with a very odd and very small exception, are publicly owned. So this is more than just public uh, health insurance. This is a public hospital system. Uh, and look at that to some extent compared to the American almost entirely either for profit or big non-profits like a Johns Hopkins, which actually operate as if they were for profit. And there's also some state publicly owned hospitals, but the big players are the for profits and the not profit, not for profits, which act and operate in a very uncoordinated manner, the way all for profits do. And we're going to kind of have some comparison to that to Canada. And then we're going to look at the economic side of things. So Mario, thanks for joining me. Glad to be on. So start, start with comparing what, how Canada has responded to the COVID pandemic. As I say, a mostly public system as compared to a mostly private system in the United States. Well, it, uh, it responded in a way which I would argue uh, was correct in what sense? In the sense that what our political authorities did, which is not quite what happened in the U.S. at least, uh, is that they uh, decided that they would let primarily the experts, in this case, you know, the medical profession, they're the experts, the epidemiologists, and so on, to, uh, you know, to the, not dictate, but obviously advise and ultimately follow on what they were suggesting to do. So in that regard, what we had it is a certain respect for th those who knew something about what was going on and to follow on that rather than to leave, you know, as I think in the case of the U.S., what happened, where you get all these mixed messages coming from the various authorities and conflicting ones of that. There was a sense of unity here, I would argue, that was not quite the case in the U.S. and more like what was, let's say, you would find in some of these other countries like New Zealand that did so well, for instance, or Australia. There was a sense of unity there, and in fact, a sense of purpose, and even all political parties here, to a large extent, okay, tended to support the government, you know, without really questioning anything. I mean, also the government, which is in a rather precarious position politically, because it's in a minority government, you know, we have a parliamentary system here. And as a minority government, they could, you know, if there's any, uh, you know, let's say, unity within the opposition, they could bring down the government. So in that regard, it was in a difficult position to be able to impose very much. So they had to be done by consensus largely with these other, uh, you know, uh, parties, you know, whether it be on the right, which would be the conservative party, or on the left, which would be the new democratic party. Okay. So in that regard, as I said, there was something good about that. I think most Canadians appreciated that. 
in terms of the ability of the public system to respond in a way yeah. that the, the pri more private system didn't, did that really express itself? And if so, how? Well, it expressed itself pretty well in, in what sense? In that here you had, uh, we've had really, actually I should say something, which is that we already gone through something some, what is it, 15 or 17 years ago with the SARS epidemic that exploded in Toronto. Uh, and therefore, we have had already, uh, you know, we had, let's call it, we have been trained to some extent in the hospital system to deal with that. Our hospital system was well trained for that, and it did accommodate. In fact, we had lots of capacity because at the same time, as you know, we had many people who would, rather than go to the hospital, avoided during the epidemic, and therefore, we actually had very little problems in dealing with that in most places, not everywhere, but in most places, except in the major metropolitan areas. But even there, nothing compared to what happened, let's say, in, in, in Europe, in like in Italy, or, or indeed in the United States. Okay? So in that regard, it was pretty well, I would say, not fully prepared. You know, obviously nobody was expecting this, but it was prepared as much as one can be in the circumstances. So again, that is not where the problem lies, I would argue. The, uh, the, there was an article in the New York Times uh, about a month ago, I guess, which compared the uh, outcome in British Columbia to the outcome in uh, Massachusetts and the, uh, more, the death rate in Massachusetts was significantly higher. Um, and it was ascribed that the public system was able to marshal resources uh, and coordinate hospitals because the public system could simply order one hospital, say specialize mm -hmm. in cancer, another hospital could take on more of the COVID load. And at the time, it looked like the Canadian death rates were about 50% of the American Mm -hmm. But over time, in fact, the numbers have started getting closer to each other. And last I saw, that it was only about a 20% difference. And then well, there was another interesting article, which is if you take out New York City, which simply doesn't have a, a parallel in Canada because the, the size and the concentration mm -hmm. of people, that the American numbers weren't all that drastically different. Canada was still a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But not, not as much better as it all looked earlier on. Yeah, I, I agree with you that the, uh, we've narrowed somewhat, but we're still, I think the gap is bigger than that. I mean, I was looking at the numbers for June 1st today, uh, and whether it be in terms of the cases, as well as the deaths, uh, for instance, in the case, uh, when we look at the cases, I calculated that it was around 5.6 per 1,000 in the U.S. In Canada, it was 2.4 per 1,000. Okay, so it's like double or even a little over mm -hmm. in the case of the U.S. In the case of the death, though, it's, it's not as, uh, as good, so to speak, vis-a-vis. -vis. It is deaths per, uh, per 100,000 here were 32.4 in the U.S., while in Canada, it was 19.5. So uh, clearly, uh, we have not been doing, uh, well, we're doing better, whatever you want to call it, compared to the U.S., yes. But certainly, uh, we, we, we're not, you know, we're nowhere uh, something to be proud about here. When we still well, part, part of the problem yeah. here, and, and yeah. it's kind of ironic, yeah. but, yeah. you know, Trump always ridicules China and other places. You can't trust their numbers. 
Right. But from what I can understand, you really can't trust American numbers because mm -hmm. apparently a lot of deaths that really are related to COVID are not being ca called COVID just to juice the, uh, make the numbers look better. Well, I know some countries actually, I think Russia was the one that was saying uh, there were such few deaths because all of these people die from some other things, which is true. Obviously, if you, if you got pneumonia, but uh, which is an opportunistic kind of disease that appears with COVID, uh, you're, and if you die from that, therefore you're not dying from COVID or something, obviously not. This is the absurdity of some of these measures here. But I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that it's similar the way we've defined them between the two countries, which may not be the case. And also in terms of the coverage now and the testing done, to what extent they are similar is the, the other problem because we really don't know. Is it the tip of the iceberg or to what extent? These are problems of measurement that God forbid we don't know here. You know, there's no way of knowing. So we're kind of comparing things that in some cases might be comparing apples and oranges again. You know, we're not. Right. Well, one, uh, one, one article that was written about this uh, that was very critical of the Canadian uh, response uh, said that it's not, it's like, shoot, he didn't say this, I am. It's like shooting fish in a, in a barrel to compare Canada to the United States. You're comparing a, a country with a public health care system to a country that's led by a man that thinks you can drink bleach. To, to, <laughs> yes, yes. And, and it's a, you know, and if you compare the Canadians uh, response and outcome to some of the countries in Europe, even France, Germany, and certainly Australia and New Zealand, actually Canada doesn't look all that good. Um, and, that, and that the response from the Canadians has not been as coordinated uh, and, and as mm -hmm. measured as it should have been. So what, what, forgetting the comparison to the US, yes. what do you make of how Canada has responded? I well, I think that's where the problem lies in the way in which we have a, a, what I could call almost a balkanized system, which sometimes actually works okay, because you know the idea being that if uh, the more it's, uh, uh, it's controlled by a province vis-a-vis -vis the whole federal government, you know, because we have such huge regional differences uh, in Canada, uh, sometimes it could actually work in our favor, but in this case, it hasn't worked so well in terms of what things have, you know, how these provincial authorities have been handling it. Uh, I'll just to give an example, to show you the big difference. Because much of the deaths, of course, you know, what is it, over 80% of them were uh, seniors and most of them indeed were from these uh, long-term long care uh, facilities out there. Uh, some of them private, some are public, by the way. Now, what's interesting is the way uh, this happened. You know, the because uh, that's where you got the, the bulk, you know, the core of all these deaths, where they come from. I, and I think it's important to say yeah. when we're comparing the American and Canadian numbers, this is really an important factor because the reason the Canadian numbers are so high is because of the long-term care facilities, the senior yes. nursing homes. And while some are public, the majority are private. And, and exactly. the largest number of deaths are in private. Privately yes, owned. that's correct. And uh, I could tell you what's important here. Compare British Columbia and let's say Ontario. Okay? In the case of uh, British Columbia, they start having the same problems that we had here in Ontario with these, uh, you know, with these seniors' homes. And uh, what happened in the case of British Columbia is something to, to, you know, to show how, it, how th that 
change uh, averted so many problems that there, you know, could have also have occurred and did occur in Ontario or in Quebec, for instance, which is that uh, the government ext uh, basically extended control uh, through the hospital system of all the, of the long-term care facilities in, in British Columbia. So in other words, they tried to impose the norms that they would have applied to the hospital system as such. So I'll give you a simple example. Right away, they, they prevent that uh, any, any worker having more than one job. They start paying them more even, okay? In the case of Ontario, they did start giving premiums at some point, but initially what happened was that they had, think of it, this is, you know, many of these people are, are, are often fairly poor people, you know, immigrants who take up these jobs in these uh, seniors' uh, homes. And many of them were holding more than one job. In some cases, as much as three, they would go through different, uh, let's say, uh, healthcare facilities and, 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 uh, and work uh, to get these, you know, the, a, a decent income. And what happened there, of course, was that one, once one of these, uh, health, uh, these workers caught it, they quickly brought it, uh, you know, and extended it to the, to the various homes that they worked at. So it just blew up in our face, literally. I mean, this is what happened there. And, and this has something to do with the way in which these, uh, these uh, places are run. There are huge problems there. And it has mostly to do with the pro, you know, the for-profit, uh, obviously, uh, nature of this business. Obviously, some of these homes were run a lot better than others, of course. Okay, but that's where the bulk of the deaths come from. Not anywhere else. Yeah, not the public system. In fact, the Ontario government now has had to take over several of the privately owned exactly senior homes, and they had to send in to some of the homes, they actually sent the Canadian army in. Uh, yep. I guess the Canadian listeners will know this, but Americans won't. The Canadian army actually had to go in and take over some of these places. That's and they correct. Were, and, and the soldiers were just appalled at what they saw. No, they uh, did a report exactly on that. And, uh, and it was appalling what, happened, what, you, what they found. Now, again, I wish to emphasize uh, that this applies primarily to the private sector ones, but not completely. You know, the problem here is that you have provincial governments, even where they were semi-public or, you know, para-public as they call them in Quebec and so on. Uh, what you had is a very loose administration, all kinds of problems in the, in the hiring, the way in which these workers, as I was saying before, if you got them to be working at three places at the same time, well, it's gonna spread very quickly, you know. And uh, so you had all of this happening uh, in, a, in a context where, as I say, you got an epidemic, but the, the hospital system was actually doing pretty well, you know. And it's just that what happened in these homes, it, it, as I said, just it's mind boggling, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, what, uh, uh, what we saw there to the extent that even our own prime, uh, uh, provincial prime minister, of course, his mother-in-law was one of them. Okay? Uh, so it, it has, uh, I think, uh, scared, uh, certainly it shook up the, uh, the political authorities to the extent that now, at least in this province, and I also think in Quebec, where the bulk of them again has happened. 
It is not anywhere else in Canada. It's primarily Quebec and Ontario where you've seen this. And that's where also the bulk of the population happens to be, of course. Okay? Uh, but as I said, this didn't happen in British Columbia. It started, it initially began that way in March, but then it quickly got it under control. The stimulus program in the United States has been critiqued for the fact that a, a large amount of the money, um, billions and billions of dollars, are going to literally prop up the stock market, to buy junk bonds, to buy corporate debt. Um, is the same thing happening in Canada? And uh, compare the economic response between the two companies. Well, we have to compare both on the monetary and on the fiscal side here. Uh, on the monetary side, I would say that it's somewhat similar. I mean, they essentially did something that they used the same kind of recipe, if you want to call it, uh, that, that was used for the, uh, uh, the, the uh, global financial crisis, you know, was it almost a dozen years ago now. And the, uh, uh, on the monetary side, of course, what they did is engage in what uh, the, the U.S. Fed is also doing, which is QE, their quantitative easing. What, what they were doing is buying up a lot of securities, mostly government, especially, which is interesting because this is something that they hadn't done before with provincial government securities, you know, government bonds and so on, provincial governments in this case, that really helped a great deal our provinces in terms of loosening up, so to speak, these markets in order so that they could access, you know, uh, funding and borrowing uh, at very low rates, okay? So in that regard, it, 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 I think it is helpful in that sense. Uh, and the U.S., I would say, did something similar. Uh, so, and, uh, and also, they, you know, the Bank of Canada, you know, they, they, they uh, backed up in any, I mean, there's any problem in the, whether it be in the banking sector and so on, they were ready to, you know, to, to, to support it, to provide, you know, credit and so on, provide funds, you know, provide liquidity, literally, uh, virtually on demand here, uh, which uh, I think is not unlike what was also going on in the U.S., the difference, I would argue, is more on the fiscal side. On the fiscal side, I mean, we've had really um, uh, adopted a you know, whole lot of measures. Now, some of them were to support businesses, yes. Uh, and, and, and in some cases, they were providing support for, you know, to maintain uh, jobs in, in these uh, and these businesses by literally paying, what is it, three quarters or whatever of their salaries there to maintain them on the payroll uh, at the time. Uh, but also there was a lot of direct transfers, not only through unemployment insurance, which is also the case in the US, but uh, also through direct, again, transfers to all kinds of people that would not normally have been touched by, you know, through an employment insurance in this case here. Uh, so any self-employed, they were all pretty much guaranteed here at $2,000 per, per month, uh, as an example. But you have all kinds of transfers of this nature that were 
uh, put in place was not the case in the U.S. to the same extent at all. And this, I would argue, is uh, is is where the, the you know the bulk of the differences would lie. Now, this is not to suggest that there were no problems here. I mean, they did, as I said, they put up a lot of money, and huge transfers, uh, whether it be for individual workers primarily, uh, but also for you know students. I mean, I'll give an example: students, uh, they're guaranteed uh, was a thousand two hundred fifty dollars. Uh, uh, because of course, you know, who, who could find a job here during the summer months? So until September, they're all getting that. Okay? And uh, we uh, therefore have done a great deal in terms of putting in money directly into the hands of the individuals. Uh, this, of course, uh, is not without certain problems. And I would argue that some critics of uh, this uh, fiscal, you know, largesse, whatever, uh, have criticized it not so much because we're spending so much money, although now some of them are starting to cry about it here, like our former Prime Minister Harper uh, recently wrote in the Wall Street Journal that we're, we're building up too much debt kind of thing. But more importantly, uh, what was the problem here is that many of these types of uh, you know transfers you had to apply for that now people have to do it online how many people could do it online now clearly uh, this could be a problem could you access it will everybody apply if they need it type of thing well that could of course have been better run. Some have argued that what we should have had instead was almost a kind of universal income where everybody got, you know, whatever it was, 2000 or whatever, and uh, they would in automatically get it because, of course, uh, you know, we could do it through the uh, with Canada Raven, uh, Revenue Agency here that would have the addresses and names of everybody who had paid taxes last year. So uh, I'm just saying that there could have been some better ways of dealing with this, but they did spend a lot of money. In fact, just to give an example of what we're talking about here, it, the, uh, uh, the government, the federal deficit jumped from, what was it, 24.9 billion in 2019-2020 to now for the, this fiscal year, 2020-2021, to about 260 billion, so more than tenfold increase in a matter of months, literally in a few months. Yeah. Uh, this is this crisis is far from over, and yeah. the uh, subsidies they've been given giving to people, which is barely enough to live, but it's something. It's something. But to they're live, about yeah. to they're going to run out, and they're going to run out. Th there's yeah. no reason to think they're going to not need another 200 billion. Minute. How how long is it? Can they keep this up? Or I shouldn't say, can they? Are they willing to, maybe? Because Well, would... this is the thing. I think they can, but will they do it is the issue. Right now, there's been, in fact, I could say here that there was, an, as I think I emphasized it earlier, there was an incredible unity on the part of all the political parties that they wanted to get things you know, done quickly. And they did. There was never any serious disagreement. There was a consensus. So if you look at March and April, 
you would find, a, you really have a hard time finding any real conflict here over issues, uh, but, you know, let's say between the conservatives and the liberal party or whatever. Where it became now, as, as soon as we're seeing things, you know, not, and now that curve is sort of going down there to some extent, you know, as, as things are starting to, to open up and uh, what has been happening is that that unity is slowly kind of coming apart, unraveling. And, and it's over this issue of the deficit or debt. Okay? So those on the left, uh, I think there's still a strong support. So whether it be by, if you think of the New Democratic Party people, or even within the Liberal Party, and I would say even the majority still within the Liberal Party, although there are, you know, right and left sort of leaning kind of liberals, uh, the uh, vast majority, I still think, uh, has, you know, strong support for continuing to provide those kind of benefits if needed in the next while. But the Conservative Party now is starting to cry that the sky will fall with the current uh, uh, debt ratios that are, have been built up. Now, to what extent have they gone up? They're not even near what we, you find in the U.S., ironically. And uh, uh, certainly nothing like, uh, I don't know, some countries like Japan, but they're, they're arguing that somehow there's going to be a real problem in the future because, you know, somehow there will be a problem of sustainability here, okay? And of that debt, uh, that, that, you know, that deficits uh, that will continue to be running their course in the next while, which I think will have to happen, you know, because things are not necessarily improving quickly enough, okay? And so in that regard, I would say that Yes, uh, there is a problem there, but it's a political problem. And I have a feeling that the majority still within that political class there uh, believe that it's necessary uh, to continue along that path. But, you know, there's a strong, strong disagreement. Uh, is there a limit? to how far the deficit can go. How much can they keep subsidizing? What well, I think there's, you know, I, it all depends what we mean by that. There's no, I mean, the, the money that uh, the, the federal government could pull out of the Bank of Canada, there's no limit, obviously, I would argue. But there are limits in the sense of tolerance, and as I said, primarily politically. Uh, because in fact, the the real uh, issue is not whether it's feasible, whether it's actually possible to continue running a deficit. Yes, you can. Uh, indeed, uh, if you look at uh, a country like Japan, just to give you that example, uh, we have well, they have a debt ratio, public debt ratio of about two hundred and fifty percent. Okay, Canada's is is now what is about a hundred percent. Right, probably slightly a little above that right now, okay? Uh, and we were, what, at 89? Uh, and this is in terms of gross debt to GDP, not the net debt to GDP, which again, uh, I, I should warn you about the nuance here. But uh, whatever indicator you would like to look at, we're still pretty low in comparison practically to most countries on this planet, okay? So if you want to use that as a kind of indicator. Uh, if you were to even do a kind of simple averaging of all, at least the Western countries, we're w way below the average there. 
we're close to Germany's and some of these other countries that have low debt ratios. Uh, we're nowhere, like the U.S. must be around 120, I think, right now. Yeah. So we are way below that, and there's a lot of room to maneuver. Also, uh, historically, if you look at ever since they came to power, the liberals, in 2015, they have not been worried about the deficit so much as they are about the, the debt-to-GDP ratio. What they've been arguing all this time, and indeed throughout even their first mandate, you know, till last year, what they were arguing was that as long as we could maintain relatively stable that debt ratio over time, okay, uh, we should be able to continue running deficits as long as GDP grows. Now, obviously, in the current context, that's not happening. You know, we're spending a lot of money and GDP collapsed. Okay, but if and when things start to improve, and this is the whole thing here, how, how quickly will that happen? Uh, my feeling is that uh, it will not be a big issue again, unless we have a very long and prolonged period of, uh, of recovery. Which is the most likely scenario now, isn't it? I think so, but you know, it's, uh, it's interesting here that even in this case, and as I was emphasizing, uh, there's a lot of tolerance on, on I would say, even within the, uh, the liberal, governing liberal party right now, to increase it further, that ratio. Okay? So, because they know at the end that this is not because of some wasteful spending here, as it is because these are necessary, you know, steps to maintain an economy and to maintain a population, you know, with the, uh, you know, in, 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 in relatively good and uh, healthy conditions here. So, uh, I mean, if I understand this correctly, in, in, in the final analysis, isn't this issue of debt uh, is not just related to GDP, but it's related to how much wealth has, does the country have? Mm. And, and if you actually just look at the amount of wealth that Canada has or the United States has, there is enough wealth there to pay people to stay at home for a long time. The problem is that wealth is in very few hands and they don't want to let go of it. So at, at some point, if you really are concerned about the debt, you have to get at that wealth, which means taxation. Mm -hmm. Am I misunderstanding this? Okay, now let me explain here. Uh, it is true that if we want to continue running uh, at ratios, maintaining ratios here, of, you know, debt to GDP, that are not going to explode as they did uh, recently, okay, you will have to start uh, raising taxes. And obviously, uh, that's where you're going to have the big debate. Uh, but I, uh, I wish to emphasize that there's been a lot of tolerance to allow that ratio of debt to GDP to jump up quickly. It will become progressively more difficult to do so, but I still think there's tolerance for it now politically. Okay. Right. But, but, but the reason, yeah, the reason this is what you, yeah. Like if you take a very poor country, yeah, that doesn't have many resources and mm -hmm. you know lives on the edge all the time. I don't know a small country in Africa, say, um, they can't do this because they won't have foreign currency to buy to import stuff. 
uh, yeah. there they'll be a they'll be a, they'll pay a fortune in interest rates to borrow. They'll get totally clobbered by international yeah. capital. Yeah. Um, but but countries that have so much wealth here, they can sustain not- this for a long time if they're willing. And if they, as I say, as you say, if you need to, if they want to worry about the ratio, debt to GDP ratio, then they just, they got to tax the rich. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know where you're coming from on this, but I'm trying to emphasize that in the case, even of, when you mentioned these African countries, many of them were even Latin American and so on. The problem there has to do with their, you know, the fact that they are, they're heavily indebted in foreign currencies and all kinds of problems there, you know, as you could imagine. So, this is a case where it's very difficult for them. You know, I mean, the extreme cases are countries like a dollarized, like Ecuador or something. And obviously, these are countries that really face the crunch at some point because they cannot generate dollars if they are not themselves, they, if they can't create it themselves, so to speak. Uh, so they have to raise taxes inevitably. But in a, most of the, the G7 countries... I would argue, except in the Eurozone. So it means Japan, the United States, Canada. Now the Eurozone is in a different predicament because they're like a dollarized country, okay? They can't create their own currency. And this is where all the problems like Italy, for instance, and Spain have been fighting among, with the Germans and so on over right now, over this whole matter, okay? Uh, and, but in the case of Canada, the United States and Japan, they all have their own, you know, their sovereign currency and therefore do not face the same difficulties in terms of generating and financing things, if you wish, that a country like Italy, for instance, was facing, okay, where they had to go heavily in debt. You got to borrow in the international financial markets to be able to make ends meet in the spending unless you tax people more, but you cannot continue to tax them to death, okay? But this is not the case in, as I said, in all these countries that have their own sovereign currency. And uh, I wish to uh, emphasize this because it is true that a country like Canada has a lot of wealth. Not only do they, we have a lot of financial wealth, but also we have a lot of you know, resources uh, you know, in this country that some of these other countries like, uh, like Italy or whatever and so, uh, could, could only dream about. But at the same time, and I want to emphasize, the issue is not so much that, whether or not because there's that wealth, that necessarily we could tax more easily. Yes, we could, okay? But that might not be the preference, you know? And this is the whole problem. The political preference here is all a matter of whether, you know, at some point you'll get the, these authorities to either buy into one or the other, which is, should we go further in, in you know, in terms of, expanding our, our, you know, building up our debt, or should we start to cut back? And you can only cut back in two ways in terms of reducing that deficit, either by raising taxes or by cutting spending. And, yeah, and then they're going to, and, and obviously yes. the conservative right-wing forces, yeah. they want to go back to like an austerity regime, but it's Absolutely. ridiculous in, in the middle of a depression. <laughs> exactly. And there are some who think that way, even within the conservative party now. Initially, nobody, until about middle of May, nobody within the conservative party was ever raising any issues about the spending. But now we're starting to see what I would call almost a concerted attack 
on the governing you know, liberal party here and their policies. And this is coming from the old guard of the former prime minister, Stephen Harper. Uh, he launched, as you know, as I was saying earlier, that he did write this article that was published in the Wall Street Journal and was referring to all kinds of scary scenario about that, that you, know, uh, 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 you know, problems of debt in this country. And some of his closest, let's call them allies and friends within the conservative party, not all of them, as I said, there are people within the conservative party who do not buy it still. Okay? But there are uh, uh, more and more of them who are, you know, are questioning whether we should continue to, you know, to build up that here. Uh, and uh, because at the end, what the conservatives mean by that and what historically that's the kind of signal here. If we're building up debt too much, inevitably or eventually, we're going to have to stop spending or we're going to have to start raising taxes. And of course, taxes is not something that uh, many in the, you know, in the conservative party care for, in higher taxes right now. So that's the problem here. It's, it's a big dilemma, but every country on this planet is facing it. And I must say that Canada is perhaps in a much better position than, uh, than most countries are. You know, especially when you think of Europe, you were giving some of the good examples of Europe in terms of their ability to get under control, you know, the, the, you know, the epidemic. But some of these countries right now face a big debt problem and uh, they are fighting over it and God knows what will be the outcome of that fight because it could literally lead to an unraveling of the Eurozone itself. Uh, which is not the case in this country. I mean, there's nowhere uh, anything like it. Right. Uh, we're, we're not facing these kind of problems. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Mario. Yeah, a pleasure. Yeah. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.